Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode contains graphic descriptions of medical afflictions that some people may find disturbing. We advise caution for listeners under 13. In 1646, on the banks of the James River in Virginia, Chief Opish Konkano of the Powhatan Confederacy laid in a state of extreme fatigue. He was a well-respected leader who led not one, but two large-scale attacks against English colonists. His energy was endless, even at 90 years of age. That was until he came down with a strange sickness. What had begun as a twitch in the legs and weakness in the arms had in hours become full debilitation. The chieftain's body was so weak that his men had to prop open his eyelids so that he could see. He would die at the hands of the English before any treatment could be attempted. Over a hundred years later, in 1894 in Berlin, Dr. Friedrich Joli treated two young boys, 14 and 15 years of age, for general muscle weakness. He could find nothing obviously wrong with them, but both often felt fatigued or exhausted to the point where they couldn't lift their arms or their eyelids. While eating dinner one night, the 15-year-old choked on his food and died. His throat muscles were too weak to swallow. Over a hundred years after that, in 1998, Dr. Stephen Tapasti sat at home in Michigan suffering from severe fatigue. He could hardly speak or swallow. Looking at him, his wife Paula commented, Your eyes are drooping. A few days later, he was in the hospital fighting for his life. He couldn't urinate, he couldn't eat, and he could barely breathe. Three cases, centuries apart, all with the same sudden muscle weakness. The cause of their illness? For centuries, it remained a mystery. When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game with life or death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. 
Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Today we are discussing myasthenia gravis, a difficult-to-diagnose illness that has plagued humanity for centuries. The name means grave muscle weakness. But what causes it? Is it a virus or bacteria? A disorder of the muscles themselves? Or something else entirely? In order to solve the mystery, we'll explore the earliest known case of the disease and 19th century attempts to identify it. Then, we'll look at the early 20th century research that led to the first successful treatment of the disease and the continued work to combat it in the modern day. Myasthenia gravis is hard to discuss in a historical context, as it has only really been known by that name for a hundred years or so. Indeed, its very existence was unknown throughout most of human history. Its symptoms are at first vague and relatively mild. The victim feels weakness in their facial muscles or perhaps in their limbs. They might begin to suffer from double vision that is so bad it renders them functionally blind. Then they can't lift their arms above their head, or they can't chew properly. Maybe they can't urinate, or their breathing becomes labored. It's entirely possible that the symptoms resolve with a night of sleep. Or they worsen, and the victim perishes. Sufferers often go some time before reporting their symptoms to a doctor. Drooping eyes? Probably just tired. Weak arms? Probably from lifting those boxes the other day. For most of human history, the condition was thus attributed to more mild causes. It either went away or it worsened and caused the victim to choke or stop breathing or be rendered completely immobile. At which point it was assumed that something more common had befallen the patient. People choke on their food all the time. Asthma, pneumonia, and a whole host of other conditions can stop a person from breathing. Poison, spine injuries, or brain damage can all render a person immobile. Therefore, myasthenia gravis is a most mysterious disease, lurking in the shadows and hiding behind symptoms that were blamed on other causes. In order to follow the thread of this mystery, it's necessary to see if any past medical texts might have alluded to the condition without knowing what it was. Combing through history, we can pinpoint cases showing all the signs of the disease. As these cases grow in number and myasthenia gravis is brought into the light, are doctors able to cure it? What causes this mysterious illness? Though Chief Opish Konkano's 1646 episode is perhaps the earliest recorded reference to myasthenia gravis, Attempts at actually studying it began in 1672 in the lab of Dr. Thomas Willis, the famed English anatomist. 
1767 portrait of Willis shows him with curly, shoulder-length dark hair, a thin mustache, and a calm, angular face. According to research done by the Spanish National Research Council, he began his medical studies in 1642. This was at the onset of the English Civil War, a conflict between those loyal to the crown and those loyal to Parliament. Death was all around Willis. Though his studies kept him out of the fighting, it was impossible not to be aware of the battles taking place across England. In Willis's case, he lost his father during the Siege of Oxford that same year. Such violence likely further motivated him to dedicate his life to healing people. And he quickly distinguished himself. He didn't consider himself above visiting dirty peasant villages to examine their ailments closely. But he was limited by the medical understanding of the time. The deeply religious people of the era saw medicine less as a study of the body and more as a hunt for the resting place of the soul. And this was a consensus. There was no disagreeing with the church. Breath, blood, urine, and other bodily byproducts were seen as vapors or spirits, which were directed by the soul. Whether the soul was located in the heart, a gland, or somewhere else was up for debate. It was against this backdrop that Willis attempted to learn more about the brain. The Spanish National Research Council reports that Willis eventually was trusted to care for the royal family, and by 1681, he had published the Cerebri Anatomy, a foundational neurology text. It is perhaps unsurprising, then, that he is our entry point into the disease that became known as myasthenia gravis. The only details of the encounter available to us are from an entry in one of Willis's many medical journals. He met with a female patient who had been experiencing strange muscle weakness off and on for years. Recently, it had become more serious. Within a single day, she would go from being fully healthy to not being able to hold her head up straight. Sometimes, she would even struggle to breathe. Willis wrote that she was scarce able to move hand or foot after being healthy and active in the morning. He expressed that she was having trouble controlling her speech and other bodily movements. It's possible that this patient's affliction was written off by previous physicians as a womanly issue. Up until this point in medicine, many female patients were simply told that their wombs were acting up, literally moving around inside them and causing pain or hysteria. Willis was actually one of the first physicians to suggest that a woman's uterus had nothing to do with most of the illnesses it was blamed for. After disregarding female hysteria as a possible diagnosis, his question became, what kind of disease seems fatal one moment and then is completely gone the next? This didn't match the usual illnesses that Willis treated. Perhaps it was a sickness of the mind. But this is as far as Willis got in studying the disease, or at least that's what his writings suggest. Regardless, the search for the truth would continue, but it would take nearly two centuries before significant progress was made. According to The History of Myasthenia Gravis by Dr. Robert M. Pascuzzi, 
A series of journal entries from physicians of the late 19th century reveal a long history of myasthenia gravis deaths. This was the era of germ theory. The superstition of Thomas Willis's century gave way to more advanced science. Disease was caused by bacteria and viruses, not by vapors and witches' curses. But from our vantage point today, we can see how even that is a narrow view. Was myasthenia gravis a bacteria or a virus? Or was it something more? The doctors of this time had a better chance of solving the mystery than their predecessors, but they were still out of their depth. They made house calls or worked in private labs more often than not, and so they were limited in their tools and facilities. Hospitals were less common than today, and according to the Melnick Medical Museum, they were dangerous. Doctors had not yet learned how to maintain a sterile environment, so going to the hospital could actually lead to a patient catching something worse. Anesthesia was a recent invention, making extreme surgery possible. But chemicals used in this process, such as chloroform or ether, could kill a patient. This was also the era of large surgical demonstrations. Patients were opened up by rock star doctors in front of viewing galleries filled with hundreds of interested professionals. It was against this backdrop in 1877 that British physician Samuel Wilkes encountered his first myasthenic. She was a young patient with no obvious maladies, but who was experiencing slurred speech and difficulty swallowing. She died suddenly a few weeks later, unable to breathe. Wilkes was obviously shocked. The next potential myasthenia gravis victim is mentioned in the journals of Dr. Wilhelm Erb of Germany in 1879. Erb discusses multiple patients, male and female, ages 30 to 55, with eyelids drooping, trouble chewing and swallowing, and general muscle weakness. One of the patients died suddenly after months of battling the illness. Like Willis two centuries before him, Erb hypothesized that the disease was neurological, but it's unclear if he made much progress in treating it. Pascuzzi writes that one of the most significant journal entries discussing the disease was from 1887. One Dr. Oppenheim of Berlin had yet another female patient with the same symptoms. He made a comparison in his observations. He felt the limb fatigue was similar to curare poisoning. Dangerous chemicals such as arsenic and strychnine were used in a variety of goods in the late 19th century. It wasn't inconceivable that curare, a paralytic from South America commonly used in surgeries, had found its way into this patient's body. Perhaps a previous trip to the doctor had exposed her to it. Could this be the answer? Were all of these patients from across the centuries victims of the same poison? It seemed Oppenheim was on the verge of solving the mystery. Next, we find out if curare poisoning is the culprit behind myasthenia gravis. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now, back to the story. In 1887, Dr. Oppenheim of Berlin, Germany, theorized that a woman in his practice was suffering from curare poisoning. She was experiencing intense muscle weakness, including trouble swallowing and even breathing. People had been suffering from similar symptoms all over the globe for centuries. Had Oppenheim finally discovered what was plaguing them? Curare is a broad term used to describe many poisons derived from South American plants. In the modern day, it most often refers to tubo curare, a compound that was used as anesthesia in the early 20th century. When released in the bloodstream, it blocks acetylcholine, the neurotransmitter that travels from nerve endings to muscle receptors and signals the muscles to contract. As a poison, it doesn't kill the victim in small doses. It merely paralyzes them, preventing their muscles from contracting. This was employed to classic effect by many tribes in the region who used darts tipped in the poison to slow their enemies. However, if a large enough dose is used, it can be too effective, causing key muscles in the respiratory system to shut down. This then suffocates the victim. And here we can see where Dr. Oppenheim drew his conclusions. His patient's muscles weakened, then she suffocated. Perhaps he really had solved the mystery of myasthenia gravis. Unfortunately, his theory didn't explain why some patient's symptoms changed over the course of a day, much less the course of months. A victim of curare poison should either perish or recover within a brief window. His theory also raised the question of how such a diverse set of people could have been exposed to a South American poison across multiple continents and time periods. To be clear, Oppenheim was only looking to address the case of his one patient and did not yet have the complete historical viewpoint that we have today. But from that viewpoint, we can see how it is unlikely that every historical victim we've discussed could be exposed to such a specific poison. And it's unclear if Oppenheim was ever able to find a connection between his patient and Curare. And so it would seem that the mystery remained. However, medical doctor Robert M. Pascuzzi writes that throughout the rest of the 19th century and into the beginning of the 20th, Physicians were paying more and more attention to the muscle-weakening disease that had previously gone unnoticed. As the medical sciences grew, doctors referred to each other's notes more often and found similarities. 
1899, Dr. Friedrich Joly presented at a conference in Berlin. He was still shaken by the sudden death of two teenage patients. Two boys, ages 14 and 15, had recently come to him with symptoms of muscle weakness. Their drooping eyes and weak limbs were certainly unusual for patients of their age, but he had hoped it was nothing more than some illness that would pass quickly. It was devastating when Dr. Yoli received word that the 15-year-old had dropped dead over supper, his throat muscles unable to swallow his food. He choked to death in front of his family. Dr. Yoli wrote out the full account along with details of his continued treatment of the 14-year-old and presented it at the conference. It was here that the disease was finally given its name. In Latin, it means grave muscle weakness. This was a big step. Though the beast was still far from understood, it had been wrestled from its lair in the shadows and put in a cage. It was on display, ready to be identified and dissected. In the coming decades, a few different treatments would emerge as somewhat effective in combating myasthenia gravis. Though many of the aforementioned male doctors attempted more archaic treatments, such as electroshock therapy and injections of arsenic, it was a female doctor who, in 1934, made the first real progress. Dr. Mary Walker came up in an era where studying medicine was very difficult for a woman. Born in Scotland, she earned her medical degree at Glasgow and Edinburgh Medical College, graduating in 1913. As the British Medical Bulletin reports, a book published just a few decades earlier in 1873 claimed that if women were granted access to higher education, they would suffer abnormally weak digestion, flowing thought, and constipated bowels. Male doctors were claiming that attending university was literally physically dangerous for a woman. Dr. Walker was thus a pioneer. When she graduated in 1913, there were only roughly 500 female doctors working in all of the United Kingdom. By 1919, legislation had passed prohibiting discrimination against women in education and the workforce. Thanks to these victories, by 1934, Dr. Walker was working at St. Alphage's Hospital in Greenwich. This is where she would have had her fateful encounter with myasthenia gravis. Hospitals of this era were sterile and conducted more scientific treatments than in the past. Gone were the superstitions about vapors in the soul. St. Alphage's had nearly 1,500 beds available for patients. They had x-ray machines, central air, and a pharmacy. Dr. Walker treated her patients in long rows of creaky metal beds. Most of the other female staff members were nurses, still sporting the large bonnets of previous decades. In June of 1934, Dr. Walker encountered a 56-year-old female patient with symptoms that will now sound familiar. The woman had started to have problems a few months prior. At first, she had trouble lifting her shopping bags. Then her head fell forward when she bent down to her fireplace. Before long, she was bedridden. Her jaw and eyelids drooped. She could barely speak. Soon, she could no longer swallow, with fluids coming back up her nose. 
Dr. Walker, a keen student of medicine, immediately recognized the disease from one of her textbooks. The patient had myasthenia gravis, but there was no definitive treatment for the disease, just conjecture from various sources. How could she help her patient and, in the process, prove that she was an effective physician? It just so happened that there was a visiting neurologist at the hospital that day. The eager Dr. Walker approached him, hoping to pick his brain about myasthenia gravis. He was dismissive, either because of Dr. Walker's status or sex, or because he simply couldn't be bothered to be distracted from his own work. She quickly brought up the disorder, hoping to at least spark some response. He didn't even really listen to her question. But as he dashed down the hallway, he called over his shoulder, Yes, yes, it's like curare poisoning. That was new information to Dr. Walker. But she did know that curare attacked the motor end organs, or myoneural junctions. This is the site where nerve endings come into contact with the muscles. She also knew that the drug physostigmine was effective in treating that area. It functions as an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor, meaning that it prevents the loss of acetylcholine at the myoneural junctions. In simpler terms, it allows the brain to communicate with the muscles. Dr. Walker was building on the knowledge of the past. As discussed, doctors knew that curare worked by preventing the spread of acetylcholine to the muscles. Perhaps victims of myasthenia gravis were suffering the same issue, but for an unknown reason. It was time to test her theory. Dr. Walker prepared a syringe containing 1 50th of an ounce of physostigmine. She injected it into her patient and waited. But she didn't have to wait long. Within an hour, the patient showed significant signs of improvement. Her eyelids and jaw stopped drooping. Soon, she could speak again. Her breathing was no longer labored. It seemed like a miracle cure. Unfortunately, it didn't last long. Within another few hours, the patient's symptoms returned. A consistent dosage of physostigmine was required to keep the symptoms at bay. Though not ideal, that was potentially good enough. Since a myasthenic symptoms come and go, the drug can be administered infrequently only when the patient is suffering an extreme, life-threatening episode of muscle weakness. The side effects of the drug include gastrointestinal distress and vivid dreams, among other things. The following year, Mary began to administer the drug orally in an attempt to cut back on these symptoms. This proved to be even more effective in treating the disease. Dr. Walker presented her findings in 1935 and was awarded a gold medal from the University of Edinburgh. There were still some who failed to see the importance of the work. This was a very rare disease, after all. But in finding a treatment for myasthenia gravis, Dr. Walker had opened the door for research into a previously elusive concept, autoimmune disease. Today we know that autoimmune disorders occur when the body mistakenly sends antibodies to attack its own tissues. This can lead to something as rare as myasthenia gravis or as common as arthritis. Allergies are a similar type of disorder and easier to understand. 
we can use them to illustrate how an autoimmune disease works. An allergic response is the body's immune system identifying a foreign particle and attempting to expel it from the body. This is essentially an overreaction, a failure to recognize that some foreign particles are harmless. The resulting symptoms, sneezing, coughing, asthma, and eczema, are much more harmful than simply breathing in some pollen would be. Similarly, in an autoimmune disease, the body is activating antibodies to attack itself, leading to potentially deadly symptoms and for no apparent benefit. In the case of allergies, one theory regarding their origins is that increased sanitation has led to human immune systems failing to recognize a wider variety of particles. The explanation for autoimmune disorders is more elusive. In fact, this process seemed so foreign to early physicians that in the time of Mary Walker in 1934, most still thought it was impossible for the body to attack itself in this way. But Dr. Walker had just shown that without a doubt, myasthenia gravis patients were suffering from an acetylcholine deficiency. At the same time, they weren't suffering from any sort of poisoning, virus, or bacteria that could cause this. The only explanation then was that the disease was coming from inside of them. By the 1950s, this concept was built upon and the existence of autoimmune disease was finally proven. According to New York's Rockefeller University, researcher Henry G. Kunkel accomplished this by studying the blood of patients with inflammation, such as in cases of arthritis and lupus. All samples contained antibodies, the kind that the body produces to attack foreign intruders. But these antibodies, which would normally attack bacteria in the bloodstream or cancerous cells, were now attacking healthy cells. They were destroying mitochondria and other organelles and doing more harm than good. This antibody reaction caused inflammation in patients with arthritis or lupus. And it was also the culprit behind myasthenia gravis. The antibodies were attacking acetylcholine in the patient's bodies, preventing it from signaling for the muscles to contract. Thus, the muscles became weak and uncontrollable. Sadly, even in the modern day, the exact reason the body does this is unclear, though a genetic component is suspected. Even so, knowing the cause of myasthenia gravis meant that it could be treated, and throughout the 20th century, new treatments emerged. The disorder was no longer fatal. If it could be diagnosed correctly. The only problem was, Many doctors continued to be ignorant of the rare disorder. Patients were told they were just imagining their illness, that they were just tired. According to Dr. Ronald E. Henderson, 60% of women with the disorder are first told they are imagining the symptoms and need to see a psychiatrist. Hundreds of years have passed, and sick women are still being accused of hysteria. In recent decades, doctors have still mistakenly assumed that myasthenia gravis was something else, and in doing so, their patients were put in grave danger. Potentially, the work of Dr. Mary Walker and others was all for naught. Myasthenia gravis remained deadly by slinking back into the shadows.
Next, we explore whether modern medicine has been able to increase awareness of myasthenia gravis and whether modern treatments are truly effective. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now, back to the story. After hundreds of years of obscurity, the rare neurological disorder myasthenia gravis was finally diagnosed and treated by the physicians of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. But as the 20th century turned into the 21st, this increase in knowledge failed to translate to widespread awareness. In most areas, doctors were unaware of the disease and how to diagnose it. In 2013, Dr. Ronald E. Henderson of Alabama published a book detailing his experience with myasthenia gravis, and in doing so, painted a clear picture of how the disease remains relatively obscure. Dr. Henderson has a personal stake in the battle against myasthenia gravis. He developed the disorder in February 1994. He wouldn't be diagnosed until nearly two years later, however, largely due to his own assumptions as a medical professional. In his book, Attacking Myasthenia Gravis, Dr. Henderson writes that when he first began to develop fatigue symptoms, he ignored them as a sign that perhaps he was getting old and slowing down. As we've seen multiple times, the symptoms eventually intensified. But Dr. Henderson kept them to himself in large part. He stubbornly resisted having to face that he was sick. Internally, he racked his brain and arrived at a diagnosis that he believed matched his symptoms, ALS. Amyotrophic lateral sclerosis is a somewhat more common neurodegenerative disease in which neurons throughout the body decay. This ultimately proves fatal as the victim's brain loses all ability to communicate with the body. Once the condition develops, the patient only has a few years to live. As terrible as myasthenia gravis is, ALS is a much more deadly diagnosis. In assuming he had this disease, Dr. Henderson was resigning himself to a few remaining years of life and frightening his family with the news of his imminent demise. He realized his error one night after his wife prepared him a steak for dinner. As he chewed the meat, his jaw suddenly went slack. He couldn't chew anymore. But he was able to swallow the bite of steak. Dr. Henderson's encyclopedic medical knowledge kicked in, and it dawned on him how wrong his self-diagnosis had been. He recalled that in most ALS patients, the ability to swallow goes before the ability to chew. 
he was experiencing the opposite. And if that were the case, then there was only one remaining disease that could possibly match his symptoms. His mind flipped back to his medical training when he briefly read about an obscure neurological disorder known as myasthenia gravis. He suddenly spoke up to his wife, saying, Darling, I have some good news and some bad news. Dr. Henderson would go on to dedicate much of his life to raising awareness of the disease. His story exemplifies how, in the modern day, even a trained medical professional who is experiencing the symptoms may overlook a myasthenia diagnosis. Dr. Henderson's book, Attacking Myasthenia Gravis, details multiple stories of affected individuals. We discussed the case of Dr. Stephen Tapasti earlier, which is one of these accounts. But perhaps the most striking story in the book is that of 16-year-old Kelly Hahi, who in 1989 fell down suddenly on the soccer field. A few weeks later, she couldn't stay standing on a pair of skis. A few weeks after that, her six-minute mile became an eight-minute one. When she complained to her family pediatrician, he evaluated her and then took her parents aside to tell them he thought their daughter was just seeking attention. Meanwhile, Kelly began to struggle to pronounce J's and B's. She had to prop her arms up on her dresser to do her hair. She couldn't swallow tea. It was truly a nightmare for the teen, as the symptoms would often clear up just in time for the adults to dismiss her. But her symptoms did mount, and soon her parents believed her. They took her to every doctor they could until they finally got a diagnosis of myasthenia gravis from a knowledgeable neurologist. It had taken months, and by this point, she had to be hospitalized. The modern canon of myasthenia gravis stories all play out similarly. In 1985, the Los Angeles Times reported the story of 26-year-old Roseanne Dunn, who initially thought her symptoms were due to her recent 15-hour labor. Her husband just thought she had postpartum depression. There is also Lois Grand, the nurse who had to drag her immobile leg through her rounds for two years before she got a correct diagnosis. Or 68-year-old Juan Vigil, who went to psychologists and ophthalmologists because he was told his symptoms were psychosomatic or ocular. In her book, Taming the M.G. Dragon, New Zealander myasthenia gravis patient Moretti Taipana Howe details how her symptoms landed her in the hospital for several months in 2016. From there, she developed pneumonia, which then seemed to trigger an even more severe bout of myasthenia gravis symptoms. It's possible that the infection weakened her body to the point where she was more susceptible to the neurological disorder. Eventually, the muscles throughout her entire body failed. She was completely bedridden and nearly comatose. One night, her heart stopped and multiple intensive care nurses and doctors had to work to get it pumping again. Her airway became blocked when she tried to eat, requiring the installation of a feeding tube. She would remain on this for months. Finally, the ultimate low point for any myasthenia gravis patient, being put on a ventilator. Moretti now required mechanical assistance to breathe. 
This was a terrible ordeal and likely one of the most severe experiences with myasthenia gravis possible. Clearly, the lack of awareness of the disorder leads to some dramatic and painful episodes. Though Moretti had been diagnosed in 2011, she likely should have been on a more aggressive treatment long before she was hospitalized in 2016. On a more positive note, for most patients in 2019, there is now a clear path for treatment, and the sudden death by respiratory failure of the Dr. Yoli era is over. Beyond the more severe treatments we've just discussed, there are several relatively simple modern treatments for myasthenia gravis. To begin with, in order to diagnose the disease, doctors inject patients with Tensilon, a strong acetylcholinesterase inhibitor not unlike the physostigmine used by Dr. Walker a century ago. If the patient sees immediate relief, then they are confirmed to have myasthenia gravis. However, this affords 20 minutes of relief at most, and the drug is not safe to take long-term. Instead, patients are prescribed Mestinon, also a cholinesterase inhibitor, but safer for long-term use. Unfortunately, this is not enough for those with more severe symptoms. For someone like Moretti Taipana Howe, whose whole body shut down, more invasive treatments are called for. Steroids such as prednisone and imurin can be prescribed. With the former, we again see the autoimmune disease and allergy similarity, as prednisone can be used to treat both types of conditions. Steroids essentially weaken the immune system, leading it to stop overcompensating and creating extreme symptoms. One obvious side effect of this treatment is that it makes the patient more susceptible to disease. While on steroid medication, Dr. Taposti had to limit his practice to non-infectious patients. There are other negative side effects of steroid use. Kelly Hahi gained 40 pounds as a teenager, leading to emotional distress at the hands of judgmental classmates and teachers. Dr. Henderson had extreme mood changes and had to sequester himself at his farmhouse to avoid embarrassing himself in front of friends and family. Patients eventually try to wean themselves off of the steroid once their symptoms have settled, but that often doesn't happen until years into treatment. Beyond medication, some myasthenia gravis patients require plasmapheresis. Recall that the very concept of autoimmune disease was proven when researchers detected antibodies in the blood of patients with inflammation. Plasmapheresis is a process in which a machine rinses the blood of these antibodies and gives the body new plasma. Plasma is the part of the blood separate from white blood cells, red blood cells, and platelets. It carries a large variety of substances through the body, water, salt, enzymes, and antibodies, among other things. When a myasthenic patient's plasma is swapped for new plasma, the confused antibodies that attack acetylcholine in the body are replaced with normal, healthy antibodies. At least until the body produces new antibodies that then go right back to attacking the acetylcholine. This is not a permanent cure, but can prevent a patient from developing life-threatening symptoms in the short term. 
In addition to this procedure, there is also intravenous immunoglobulin, which injects the body with a different kind of antibody that attaches to the problem-causing ones. Finally, as was mentioned in the case of Kelly Hahi and Moretti Taipana Howe, a thymectomy may be performed. The thymus is a gland behind the breastplate that is actually vestigial by the time a human reaches maturity. Meaning it produces important disease-fighting T-cells and hormones during puberty. But once that mission is complete, it converts to useless fat tissue in adulthood. However, about 10% of adults with myasthenia gravis discovered that they have a tumor on the thymus. This can lead to cancer spreading throughout the body, but it also leads to an increase in myasthenia gravis symptoms. All patients who undergo a thymectomy, whether they have a tumor or not, experience significant improvement after this procedure. It is, however, risky for younger patients who are still developing and need the gland to complete its work. And as mentioned, the surgery requires the opening of the chest cavity, which is as safe as possible in the modern era, but is nevertheless about as invasive as surgery gets. With books from people like Dr. Henderson and Moretti Taipana Howe, myasthenia gravis awareness is increasing among physicians. The amount of material available online alone is a clear improvement from decades past. A patient suffering symptoms could likely do an internet search and quickly realize they have myasthenia gravis, and then go to their doctor for the Tensilon test to confirm. It seems that most patients will have to battle through a period of extreme symptoms while working toward a treatment plan that works for them. But after that, myasthenics go on to lead productive, happy lives. In this sense, the mystery is solved. Myasthenia gravis is one of the best understood neurological disorders, though certain underlying questions still remain. But these are the medical mysteries that haunt modern medicine more generally. What is the underlying cause of autoimmune disorders? How can the body be kept from harming itself this way? Ultimately, myasthenia gravis has gone from being completely lethal to completely survivable. Physicians such as Thomas Willis and Dr. Friedrich Yoli would be glad to see that this disease has been beaten back. It likely made them feel helpless. The disease affected their patients suddenly and with varied symptoms, proving fatal or completely disappearing without any clear reason. But it is, of course, to them and to physicians like Dr. Mary Walker that modern treatments are owed. Without their work in bringing the disease out of the shadows, this would be one medical mystery that remained unsolved. Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Medical Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast 
and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Liebeskind, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Greg Castro and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rosner. <laughs> ¶¶